to your mind when we throw a word up on the screen. Let's go. So number one, Jonah and the Noah's, David and Daniel and the Moses and the, that one's a little tougher. Some say Ten Commandments, others say Red Sea or Moses and the burning bush. Okay, these are all heroes of our faith that when their name is mentioned, almost immediately we associate them with a defining moment in their life that helps shape them into the hero that God had created them to be. Starting next month, we'll be going into, Lord willing, a new message series that I'm calling Defining Moments. And I wanted to give you a little taste of that this morning. So I hope you have your Bibles with you as we dive into God's Word today together. As we look at some of these heroes of the faith, I would say even without exception, any of these great heroes, be it uh, Noah or be it Abraham or David or Daniel or Paul or Peter, any of these heroes, Old or New Testament, you will be able to find at least one defining moment that shaped them into that hero God had created them to be. So Noah, he lived for over 900 years. That's a pretty old guy. Over the course of 900 plus years, do you suppose possibly he participated in a lot of different moments in his life? you think so? Absolutely. And if you live to be 900, there's going to be millions of different moments in your lifetime. But Noah will always be remembered for that defining moment when God came to him in Genesis chapter 6 and said, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world because of its sin, but tell you what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the charge to build an ark, a huge boat out here in the middle of nowhere that you will use to save your family and two of every animal and bird on earth. And so Noah, in that defining moment, obeyed the word of the Lord. And he became one of the heroes of our faith. What about King David? King David was not even king yet. He was just a teenage boy. And he was there on the battlefield. And there was this huge guy more than twice his height. He was just a little pipsqueak. But he goes with his little sling and his little stone. And he slays the giant. David will always be remembered for that encounter with Goliath. What about Daniel? Daniel had many defining moments. But his greatest, most defining moment was when he, as a senior citizen, was pulled out of the convalescent home and thrown into a lion's den. And there he was in the lion's den all night with these hungry lions, and because of his faith in God, the mouths of the lions remained closed. We look at Peter, we look at Paul, we look at all of these heroes of the faith. They all have defining moments. And I'm curious this morning, As you look back on your walk with the Lord, most of us in the room today have followed the Lord for quite some time. As you look back on your Christian journey up to this point, I'm curious, what have been your defining moments? What have been the moments that you look back on and say, that was a time where I I drew a line in the sand and I said, this is the way I'm going to be from this point forward. I'm going to follow the Lord better. I'm going to follow Him more faithfully. I'm going to use these talents and gifts God has given me to make a difference in the lives of those around me. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ better than ever before as if what I've done up to this point was just child's play. What have been your defining moments? And I'm curious, in the days to come, what will be your defining moments that come? Because I guarantee you in the days to come, we will have those moments where God gives us an opportunity to step up to the plate and make a difference for Him. 
And so let's go ahead and go to the word, go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to dive into your word today. I thank you, Lord, that the Bible is our guidebook for life. It teaches us about you. It teaches us, Lord, what you expect of us. And one of my favorite things about your word is it gives us example after example after example of men and women who did it well and men and women who failed. And Lord, we can look to them as examples of what to do and what not to do. And so Lord, in this series, I pray, O oh God, that you would be honored as we look at some of these heroes of our faith and learn how we can handle the challenges you give us well as we come to those defining moments in our lives. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. I need you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. We're going to look at her defining moment this morning. Esther is a short but powerful book in the Old Testament. It's really interesting. It's the only book in the Old Testament where the name of God is not mentioned even a single time. And many Bible scholars over the years have wrestled with that. Why is God's name not mentioned a single time? But if you read the story of Esther, you find that God is all over the book. He's all over the story. And for whatever reason, the original author didn't include his name in the book, but it's clear that God is working in the whole story of Esther. And we'll see that today as she comes to her defining moment in chapters 4 through 7. So Esther, if you're not familiar with the story, most of us probably haven't read the book of Esther in a while. So let me just give you a quick summary of what takes place in the first few chapters. So Esther chapter 1 begins about 50 years after the end of the Babylonian captivity. So you may remember what happened. The nation of Israel had turned its back on God after King David's son Solomon had died. And so what happened after King Solomon's son came to rule is the nation of Israel split in two. Ten of the tribes stayed in the north, two in the south, and they became two kingdoms. But both of those kingdoms of Israel strayed from the Lord. And so God allowed the nation of Assyria to come in and conquer those ten northern tribes around 722 B.C., a little over 700 years before Jesus was born. About 150 years later, those two tribes in the south, God allowed the nation of Babylon to come in and destroy. And so there in around 586 B.C., about 587 years before Jesus was born, not quite, about 583 before he was born, he allowed Babylon to come in. Nebuchadnezzar's army came in. They tore down the walls around the capital city of Jerusalem. They burned down that beautiful temple that Solomon had built, and they killed thousands of the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. And remember what happened there in 586. The Babylonian army took hundreds of those Jewish people and put them in chains and hauled them across the desert back to Babylon. And just as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied, for 70 long years, the Jewish people who were taken to Babylon were captives. They were POWs in this foreign land of Babylon. And so 70 years came and went. And Daniel was excited about this. In the book of Daniel, you can read about what happened around the time that that 70 years came to an end and the people were able to return to Israel. But what happened near the end of that 70-year captivity is that Babylon was conquered by Persia. The Persian Empire conquered Babylon and Persia came to the throne. 
And so Cyrus was the first king of Persia after Babylon was conquered. And King Cyrus issued the decree in his first year that the Jews could return home. And so about 50 years passes. King Cyrus has died. And now there's a king named Xerxes who is king of Persia. And that's where we pick up in chapter 1. King Xerxes is king of Persia. Many of the Jews had chosen not to return back home to Israel because they'd already established roots there in Babylon and in Persia. And so we still have Jewish people throughout the nation of Persia when Esther comes onto the scene. In chapter 1 of this book of Esther, we read that the king, King Xerxes, had a queen named Vashti. And Vashti was a very independent, strong-willed woman. One day, the, the king, Xerxes, was throwing a grand party for all of his famous nobles and all of his military leaders. And all the guys were together in the banquet room getting drunk and having a grand old time with the ladies elsewhere. And after he comes to the culmination of his party, he decides, you know what, my wife is so pretty, I'm going to have her come and parade in front of all these fellas. And so he gives the command, he sends a servant to go get Queen Vashti in the next room and bring her in in all of her beauty and splendor to be paraded around his half-drunk friends. And what does Vashti say? No. No. You don't say no to the king of Persia. And so Xerxes is pretty upset. He didn't care for insubordination. His ego didn't like being pricked this way. And so what does he do? He decides to make a law that Queen Vashti is hereby deposed as queen and she will never be able to step foot in his presence again. And so that's exactly what he does. He gives Queen Vashti the boot. She's no longer queen. Well, all the fellas in the capital city of Susa, loved the king for making this decision because none of these guys wanted their own wives to start getting uppity. And so here he is, having flexed his ego. Everybody knows that he is in charge. Unfortunately, there's a small problem. He now doesn't have a queen. And so in chapter 2, some of his advisors advise him to go looking for a new queen. And so those advisors are sent out throughout the capital city of Susa and throughout Persia looking for the most gorgeous young maidens that are available and of marrying age. And so they go out throughout the kingdom of Persia, and one by one they're bringing in the most beautiful women in Persia, and one of these young women they bring in is none other than Queen Esther. Not queen at this point, but a young lady named Esther. We're given the backstory in chapter 2. Esther uh, was an orphan. Her parents had died when she was young, and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and Mordecai raised her to carry out the Jewish faith, a belief in Yahweh, a belief in God, and to follow him with everything she had. But Mordecai gave her one command before she was taken back to the palace. He said, do not let anyone know that you are Jewish. Keep that a secret. And so she's brought back to the palace, presumably with dozens of other beautiful women. And for a full year, Esther and these other dozen women or so are taken through these extensive beauty treatments to prepare them to go into the king one at a time. And each of these beautiful uh, knockout uh, uh, beauty contest winning women are brought into the king and he looks at them one by one and then Esther comes in and he sees Esther in a brand new light. And he chooses her to be queen of Persia. So here you have this young Jewish orphan who becomes queen in the most powerful land on earth at the time, the land of Persia. 
And so in chapter 2, we find that she becomes queen. And as we make our way into chapter 3, we're introduced to a a, a right-hand man of the king. King Xerxes' second-in-command was a man named Haman. And Haman was an ornery, and he was an evil man. Well, uh, Esther's cousin Mordecai used to hang out at the king's gate. And as he hung out at the king's gate, he had a run-in with Xerxes' second-in-command, Haman. And Haman began to nurse a grudge against Mordecai. And he determined that he was going to kill Mordecai, but it wasn't enough to just kill him. He was bound and determined to kill every single Jew in Persia because Mordecai was Jewish. And it wouldn't be enough simply to kill his enemy. He must kill all of his enemy's relatives as well. And so in chapter 3, he tricks the king into making this new edict, this new law that on the 13th day of the 12th month, All of the Jews in the nation of Persia were going to be exterminated. This was a very Hitlerian idea. This idea that there would be mass genocide. Every Jew would be wiped out and there's nothing the Jewish people could do to defend themselves. And so Haman tricked the king into signing this edict. And so as we enter chapter 4 here, that's the backdrop. Mordecai has just read this notice that has been posted there in the capital city of Susa that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew is going to be annihilated. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Okay, give me a moment because I'm not there yet. Usually I mark this in my Bible before the sermon, but uh, I failed to do that this time. Esther, is that Old Testament or New? Just kidding. Heard someone say... If the pastor tells you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and he's the last person in the room to get to it, you may want to find another church. Esther chapter 1. This is chapter 4. Let's go to the right chapter. Esther chapter 4 verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. See, at this point, Esther hadn't heard the edict. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces, they know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. 
The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. You see, the Jewish people here were in quite a pickle. They were all slated for destruction on the 13th day of the 12th month. And according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, when the king issued a decree, he himself could not even revoke this decree. It was a done deal. The law had been passed. There was nothing even the king himself could do about it. But certainly, certainly there must be something that the king could do. Something he could do to allow the Jews to defend themselves or, or somehow to, to stand up against this attack. The problem was there weren't any Jews within the king's circle of influence who could put a bug in his ear. Hey king, Haman has tricked you when you gave him your signet ring to sign this edict into law. Haman has tricked you, king. He's pulled the wool over your eyes. There's no Jew in his circle of influence to say, King, do you realize it's the Jewish people who your grandfather, King Cyrus, said could return to their homeland? This is the people slated for destruction on the 13th day of the 12th month. There was no one who had a bug in the king's ear. No one except for Esther. So after sending her a copy of Haman's edict, according to verse 8, Mordecai urged Esther, go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for your people. Well, that was easier said than done. It, it seems from reading these verses that Mordecai didn't know uh, something rather important that Esther did know. You see, Esther understood that part of the law of the land was that no one, not even the queen herself, could go into the king's court without first being summoned by the king. Maybe this was a law that was passed after Vashti got a little uppity. We don't know for sure. But this was a law of the land. If anyone went into the king's court without being summoned by the king, there was but one consequence. They'd be killed. There'd be no trial. There'd be no defense attorney. There'd be no 10-day waiting period. There'd be none of that. They would just be killed. And so Queen Esther responds to Mordecai's request. I see where you're coming from, Mordecai, but it's not as easy as you think. I can't just walk into the king's court. It's been like a month since he's called me into his presence. It's been a while. I can't just barge in there. If I barge in there, I'm going to be killed. I can't do what you're asking. She weighed the pros and cons, and she came to the conclusion that it just wasn't worth the risk. So she sends the attendant back to Mordecai with this information. And that's where we pick up in verse 12, where Esther is about to meet her defining moment. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the kings in the king's household that you of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but you, that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. My favorite verse in all the book of Esther. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. For more than 20 years, these words of Mordecai have, have resonated in my mind and heart and inspired me over and over again. 
Mordecai offers his cousin Esther this timeless advice. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. In other words, God has a purpose. God has a plan. And that purpose and plan is to preserve the Jewish nation. You can bet your bottom dollar, Esther, that God Almighty will not allow the Jewish people to be exterminated. One way or another, God will make sure that the Jewish people live on. But also make no mistake about this, Esther. If you choose to remain silent at this time, God will preserve the nation, but not without great, great cost. You and your family and many others will be wiped out. Who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther, of all the beautiful young ladies in Persia, why do you think you were chosen to be in the king's harem? And of all the young women in the harem, why do you think that you gained favor with the king's court? And of all the beauty pageant knockouts in the harem who were much more qualified than you to become the next queen, why do you suppose it is that the king chose you? Who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. All of it, Mordecai suggests, was orchestrated by the hand of God. Esther was chosen for the harem because God wanted her to be chosen. She gained favor with the king's court because God caused her to gain favor with the court. And Esther was chosen by King Xerxes to be queen of Persia because God saw to it that she was chosen by Xerxes to be queen of Persia. God was in it. God was under it. God was all through it, wasn't He? Why did God want Esther to be there? Because He wanted her to be there for such a time as this. Long before the king's attendants had knocked on Esther's door and invited her to the palace, God knew that this day would come when the Jews were slated for destruction. And in His wisdom and in His sovereignty, He chose this pretty young woman to save the day. Isn't God awesome? He knew all about this years ahead of time. Years earlier. He knew what was going to happen, and He chose her to be a hero in this moment. Notice what happened starting in verse 15. It's hard for Nolan. He got his first haircut this last week. He's a cute little guy. Spurred on by the king's command. I've got to get in the right chapter. Forgive me. Chapter 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She has determined in her mind that she is going to rise to the occasion at her defining moment. She may die for taking a stand. She may die doing what she knows God wants her to do. But she has made the decision to walk in obedience and walk in brave boldness and faith anyway. She has drawn the line in the sand and said, I'm not going back. 
I'm going into the king's presence even if it's the death of me. Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. You bet she was nervous at the time, don't you? The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance and when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he said, off with her head! Right? When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. Remember, the only way her life could be spared, he held out his gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Queen Esther asks. Not only does he give her mercy by extending the scepter, God caused him to give her grace. Not only does he spare her life and mercy, he gives her grace saying, whatever you want, Esther, up to half of your kingdom, half of my kingdom, it will be yours. Do you think maybe, just maybe at that moment, Queen Esther knew that God was in this? Do you think maybe she understood that God was with her, that God would never leave her or forsake her? You bet. And so what does she do? She says, I want you and also your second in command, Haman, to join me later today for a banquet. King says, you got it. So we read later in the chapter, they come for that banquet. It's just Queen Esther, King Xerxes, and Haman. Haman's getting all excited because there's a special banquet. and He was only uh, one of two guys invited in the whole kingdom to be a part of this. So he's patting himself on the back thinking he's all that in a pocket of change. He's thinking he's really something. And so he comes to this banquet and once again the king asks Esther, what would you like me to grant you? Up to half of my kingdom, it's yours. And she said, please king, would you just grant me this? Come tomorrow to the second day of the banquet and then I'll let you know my request. He says, no problem. And so the next day they have the banquet again and Esther is there with Haman and with King Xerxes and she tells the king all that he needed to know. That Haman was the one that had tricked him into slating the Jews for destruction. That Haman was the one who had uh, kind of hoodwinked the king into signing this edict, having all of the Jewish people exterminated on the 13th day of the 12th month. She let him know, King, we need you to do something. And so he does something. That night he has Haman hanged and puts him to death for what he had done. He takes Mordecai, Esther's cousin, and makes him second in command to take Haman's place. And the king makes a new edict that says on the 13th day of the 12th month of that year, the Jewish people could take up arms and defend themselves against their attackers. And so the edict is sent out throughout the kingdom, and the 13th day of the 12th month come, and the Jews are ready for the attack. And as those attackers come, they are obliterated by God's people because the hand of God was with them. Queen Esther had risen to the occasion for such a time as this. It was her defining moment. And I wonder what your defining moments have been. Let me tell you about one of my defining moments that took place at this point 22 years ago. It's 1996. 
I just graduated from Bible college, and when I was in college, I stayed an extra year to do a second bachelor's degree, and I got a degree in psychology as well as in church ministry. And the reason I got a degree in psychology is I figured at 21, 22 years old, I would probably be too young to go into full-time ministry, and my emphasis in ministry was preaching, and I thought no one's going to want to hire a preacher who's 21, 22 years old, and I kind of liked counseling, I liked psychology, and so I decided to get a degree in psychology as well, and I decided that coming out of my bachelor's program, I would apply to doctorate programs in psychology at different schools across the country. And so my intention there at the start of the summer of 1996 was to uh, go to a graduate school in psychology to become a licensed psychologist, and then as I got older, go ahead and slip into full-time ministry if God opened the door for that. And so I applied to different schools. I applied to USC's uh, graduate program in psychology, and USC didn't give me the time of day. But then I zeroed in my search on two schools in particular, George Fox University up in Oregon. And so I flew up to Oregon one weekend and spent some time interviewing with them about that, that particular program. And then I applied to BYU. Now, why on earth would I apply to a Mormon school? Because they have one of the best graduate psychology programs in the country, and their NCAA status is contingent upon them not proselytizing non-Mormons that come to their university. And so I felt comfortable enough that if I went to a Mormon school, I would be okay. They wouldn't try to proselytize me, and I could get my degree and continue on toward becoming a psychologist. Well, they only accept 10 students each year into their freshman program for their graduate program. The four-year program, that first year only accepts 10 students. And so after I interviewed at BYU, a few weeks later, I got the notice that I was number 12. I was close, but didn't quite get accepted. But one of those first 10 dropped out. And then I got the call one day that another had dropped out, and I was being accepted into the class of 10 being brought in for that doctorate program in psychology. I gladly accepted the offer. What an opportunity. Ten people in the country accepted to this program. And I was on cloud nine. But there was a problem. I might have been on cloud nine, but at the same time, I wasn't at peace about it. And I was really wrestling with this decision of what to do. And I remember one night, Christine and I had just been dating for a few months, and her parents lived in Bray. I was at their house with Christine one evening, and I was driving back to my parents' house in Ventura County. It was a drive that usually took about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And I got into my car, and as I was driving my car back to my parents' house, I remember crying out to God and saying, God, I don't know what to do. God, I don't know what to do. Would you tell me what you want me to do? I've been accepted in this program. It's an honor, but I'm just not at peace about it. And it was one of those points in my life where God spoke to me more clearly than about at any other time in my life. And God spoke so clearly to me as I was crying out in prayer. And he asked me this simple question, Dane, where does your passion lie? Well, that was easy to answer. I answered in ministry. And so God responded to me, well, Dane, if your passion lies in ministry, shouldn't you be studying ministry? And it's as if the light bulb suddenly went off. What the heck are you doing going off to some Mormon university? What the heck are you doing studying psychology? And it was like God so lovingly came up to me and said, Dane, I love you. And, and, and I just, it, it all made perfect sense. And so I drove the rest of the way home to my parents' house, and I told them that weekend the decision I had made, what God had, had laid on my heart. My mom was thrilled. My dad hated the decision. 
He didn't think I should go into full-time ministry. He didn't think my skin was thick enough. He may be right. But when all is said and done, God had spoken. And so later that, uh, that next week, I called BYU and let them know, thank you very much for the offer, but I'm going to have to turn it down. Okay, God, now what? I, if you want me to study ministry, here I am. The summer is ticking away, and the program's starting like a month and a half. Who's going to accept me at this point? Pacific Christian College, where I just graduated, found out that I was looking to get into a ministry program, and they came and said, here's what we're going to do, Dane. We're going to give you a 75% scholarship to do our master's program in ministry. And tell you what, to cover the other 25%, you just volunteer five hours a week in our admissions department, and we'll give you another 10 to 15 hours a week paid on top of that. So we'll give you a 100% scholarship to do the master's program in ministry and give you a side job as well. You tell me God doesn't work. And three years later, I got a call to come and serve you fine folks. Now, if I had not taken that path at that defining moment, you may be stuck with a perfectly good pastor today. But instead, God has blessed you with me. Blessed, cursed, however you want to look at that. But you know what? I've had a lot of times over the last 19 years that I've served God in full-time ministry, and I've asked God, why me? Why me? There have been times where I've doubted my abilities, where I've doubted my effectiveness, but I have never had to look back and second-guess what happened on that night in 1996 as I cried out to the Lord in my car driving to my parents' home because God spoke so clearly. That was a defining moment. God had called me to full-time ministry. I want to share with you a, a few verses outside of the book of Esther that I think help shape our defining moments. And when those defining moments come in the days ahead, I hope that these verses will be impressed upon your minds and hearts. And I encourage you to be on the back of your handouts because we will have a few blanks to fill in. I encourage you to, to really chew on these verses. First of all, Jeremiah 29:11 through 13. Uh, many of you probably have Jeremiah 29:11 memorized, but I don't want you to miss the two verses after that either because they're so good. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Look at these next two verses. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. First lesson. When you find yourself at a crossroads, please don't take the easy way. Instead, take God's way. Because it's always the best way. Amen? We're going to find ourselves at some crossroads in the days to come. And you're going to be faced with some tough decisions. What do I do? Some of you teenagers, you've got some big decisions coming up in the next few months, in the next few years. Where am I going to go to college? What am I going to major in? What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with this midterm coming up? What am I going to do about these finals? What am I going to do? Do I move out of the house? Do I stay at home? 
Now we have knee-jerk reactions. I'm moving out. Woohoo! Unfortunately, it takes a lot of money. What are we going to do? Some of you adults have some tough decisions. What am I going to do about my job? What am I going to do about my house? What am I going to do about my health? What am I going to do about my ministry? What am I going to do about my church? What am I going to do? When we come to that crossroads, do not choose the easy way. Choose God's way. It's always, always the best way. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. This one you'll be familiar with the the verses as well. Maybe not quite as familiar as the Jeremiah 29 passage, but this is a well-loved passage as well. Would you read this with me? But now... This is what the Lord says. He who created you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And the next part. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Some of us look at those verses and say, well, wait wait a minute. God, you, you didn't say that I wouldn't have to go through the flames. That's true. God didn't say that. You didn't say I, I wouldn't feel like I'm drowning at times. That's true. God didn't say that either. What He does say, though, is when you go through the waters, when those waters are engulfing you, when it feels like you're going through the flames and it feels like you're being scorched by those flames, God does promise, I will be with you. As we serve the Lord, as we trust the Lord, as we walk in obedience to the Lord, He promises to be with us, which leads us to this second lesson. When a defining moment arrives, it may scare us half to death. You may feel like you're drowning or being swept away or being burnt to a crisp, But if you will trust in Christ and follow His lead, there is nothing to fear. Amen? I'm guessing that Esther was scared half to death when she flung open those doors and stepped into the king's hallway. There were probably some guards at the door. And when they saw her standing there and saw that look of determination on her face, knowing full well that look on the face said it all, she was about to go through those doors. And they had been given the 411 on any individual who was allowed to come into that courtroom to come through those doors that day, and Esther was not on their list. And so you can imagine them stepping in front of Esther and saying, Esther, we like you a lot. Are you sure you want to do this? And probably with trembling hands and with a trembling lip, she said, yes, I'm going to do this. And she stepped through those doors and entered the courtroom. There was really nothing to fear as she walked in obedience to the Lord's command. And when your moments come, in the days to come, I would say the same for you. There's nothing to fear. When you obey the Lord, when you trust the Lord, when you love Him and do what He has asked you to do, you know that He's got your back. Amen? He's got your back. And so I hope and pray, when those moments come, maybe you won't have one today, maybe you won't have one this week, but it, maybe it's the week after or next month or later this year. When those moments come, I hope that you'll walk in obedience to the Lord's command. I hope you'll take God's way, not the easy way. Because who knows, maybe 20 years from now you'll be looking back and you'll be celebrating what God did through you when you took a stand 
with that divine appointment He gave you when you came to your defining moment. Lord, we come to You in Jesus' name thanking You that You give us these moments like the moments You gave to Esther to stand for You. To stand for You, O God, to walk in obedience to Your command. Lord, You give us these moments to inspire those around us to make a difference in their lives. And Lord, I thank You so much for these these glorious examples in Scripture, whether it's Noah or whether it's Abraham or or David, whether it's Daniel or or Paul or Peter, who took stands for You, O God. I pray that we'd be inspired by their examples and take a stand for You as well. Lord, that we would count the cost and that we would stand for You regardless of the consequences, knowing, Lord, that You have our backs. You've got us covered. May we shine for You, O God, and may this world be changed through these defining moments. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you're here today and you need prayer for whatever reason, we want to pray with you. We've got a special prayer request coming up in a little bit. I'll share that with you after this song. But if you need prayer for whatever reason, you come. If you're here today and you need to make a decision for Christ, and realistically you don't know if your life ended today, whether you'd go to heaven or hell. If you want to know today for sure that you're secure with Jesus Christ, we'd love to share that with you over these next few minutes. If you come to the front, if you need prayer or to talk to someone about Jesus Christ, if you're more comfortable, you can go to the back. Skip will be back there to pray with you or talk to you about Christ. As we stand right now together, you come. If you need prayer or have a decision to make.